Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, on this edition of the podcast, I've got none other than a campaign top 100 CMO, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, you heard that correct. A top 100 CMO in the form of Mark Evans, who is CMO of Direct Line. Not just a top 100 uh, CMO, but also winner of Marketing Week Grand Prix for effectiveness. So uh, congratulations to the team at Direct Line and to Mark. So I wanted to catch up with Mark and find out just how they have done it at Direct Line, what their strategy was, how they positioned the brand, and what led to such good creative work that has delivered uh, so many commercial results. Mark talks a lot about this, but also a lot of the wisdom he's picked up over his career, how in fact he survived uh, an entire decade as CMO, which uh, as any of you will know who've listened to podcasts before is quite an achievement uh, given the uh, short tenure of most CMOs. Mark is a wonderful guy, hugely insightful, lots of practical wisdom about marketing and a huge wealth of experience. So this is a great episode. There's a lot we can learn from Direct Line that you can apply to your own career and some advice on how to get on as well. So without further ado, here is Mark Evans. Mark, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, pleasure, John. I'm very grateful to be here. I'm glad you emphasised the crew because you made it sound like my award and, and I had very little to do with it, in fact. Uh, but nonetheless... And we're very pleased with that particular accolade for, for, for some reasons that I'm sure we'll come on to. Indeed, indeed. Well, it's great. And, and, and you're quite right. It's always, these things are always a team effort. And often the, the important thing for the boss is to be picking a good team to, to go and deliver the goods. So let's start with, so, you know, you've um, obviously achieved a great deal in your career at Direct Line, but I also wanted to kind of cover some of the other stuff as well. But just kind of, you know, looking through your bio and some of the other things you do, you, you, were, you made the top 100 CMOs as well on campaign this year, which well done on that. Always good to uh, to be mixing it on the list. Yeah. And, and you also do a lot of non-exec directing and charity fundraising. And you've got a side hustle rather like me with your own podcast, of course, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we started it in the early days of lockdown uh, with the School of Marketing as a bit of a shot in the arm, pre, pre-vaccine. So proverbially speaking, a shot in the arm. Mm, yes. Um, the places we'll go, we've interviewed some amazing people about the squiggliness of their personal journey. So it's really a bit about mm. what makes successful people tick and normalizing struggle because it's always the case that it hasn't been a perfect journey. So yeah, Richie, Richie Meta and I co-host that and it's eight o'clock every Friday morning and it's a great distraction actually. Brilliant. It's funny, actually, I oft, people often ask why I do my podcast in addition to the day job, and I describe it as therapy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my own therapy to sort of go, okay, it's not just me then, it's, this is normal. It's catharsis, but I think, you, you know, if, I'm sure you're the same, you actually learn as well. So yeah, Oh, masses. Yeah. yeah. In a world where we need to constantly relearn and be stimulated and be curious, uh, it's, it's sort of intravenous, which I really like. Yeah, no, no, me too. Well, listen, let's come back to that at the end because I'd love to, to sort of pick your brains on that as well and find out how you've got on with that. Let's start then with a bit of background on you. So I picked this up from listening to Stephen Bartlett. He was uh, interviewing Jimmy Carr the other day on, the, on Diary of a CEO. And he had this lovely, he's introduced this lovely idea where each guest leaves a question for the next guest, which I thought was great. And, and Jimmy Carr was asked, I can't remember who the previous guest was. It was a Manchester United player, I think, Patrice Ever, I think, said, are you happy? And it was, was such a brilliant question. Anyway, so I, I asked Rory Sutherland, and his question for you is, are you actually Welsh with a name like Evans? Well, uh, that's a very good question. I, I don't, I, bizarrely, I don't think I've been asked that in many, many moons. Mark, Mark, Mark Evans is a very, very popular name. The executive producer of TJ Hooker was a Mark Evans. 
Ah. The director of rugby at Harlequins was a Mark Evans. It's as common as Mark. No, not really. I think probably great-grandfather was Welsh. Mm. I was born in Scotland. I've lived nearly all my life in England. I played for English universities at rugby. So Did you? Come oh. the Calcutta Cup, I've, there's only one allegiance for me. <laughs> I, 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 I've had relations who've lived there from time to time, but I, I'm not. So I, I guess it is what it is. You know, Our surnames uh, carry more baggage than they should maybe. Indeed, indeed. All right, well, listen, let's let's, let's move on because uh, you, you've done a lot in your career. You juggle quite a lot at the moment. I thought I'd just ask you a little bit about, you know, about you and how you approach kind of your career and things. Tell me what gives you what gives you energy? Uh, so what, what are the things that gives you stimulation, energy? What, what, what gets you out of bed at, in the mornings? Well, a number of things, actually. So I'm a bit of a magpie. I like new things. I think that's one of my nicknames at work. So I easily get distracted by the shiny new thing. And I like I like winning. I guess back to the rugby, you know, I'm mm. a bit of a competitive bugger. And now, you know, it's obviously competing with our peer set in the sector as opposed yeah, to yeah. internal competition, very important point. But probably more than anything, where do I get energy? We may come into it in a bit more detail, but I think I'm really tuned into my purpose. And... I find that when I'm on purpose, you just get abundant energy. Uh, actually, maybe indulge me just a, a tiny bit. There is a backstory which we might get to, but I define my purpose as helping people to improve performance and fulfillment. It's uh, not a trade-off. It doesn't have to be. You can do both simultaneously. The, the trick is just to be really tuned into what it is you're good at and do more of it. In the extreme, Olympians do one thing amazingly well. Um, and so that leads me to want to help people and to do a lot of coaching, uh, mentoring, advising and so on, because I think that can be quite an epiphany for many people. And so it permeates pretty much everything I'm doing. I'm always looking for what's the end of performance and fulfillment and end lots of conversations around to that space. And I find that when I'm living to that, you know, literally, ideally in every meeting and every conversation, that's that's when... Energy just never seems to really be a problem. Oh, that's lovely. That it's, it's really interesting because it ties back to you know mentioning Stephen Bartlett and his diary of a CEO. Jimmy Carr was his advice. It, it wonderfully profound episode actually, and uh, such a clever guy. And he was he was saying his top advice to everybody is find the thing that you're good at that you can do a little bit better than everybody else, and next year just do more of it. Yeah. And he just said because he looks at his career and he goes, it wasn't some master plan. I didn't you know, set out to be on TV and doing comedy. But I suddenly realised I was a little bit better at telling jokes. And so I said, next year, I'm going to get even better. I'm going to get, you know, more laughs per minute than before and, and just focus on the thing that you're good at. Because that's where energy comes from, doesn't it? When you're good at something, it just, it's like rocket fuel. I, I love that. Uh, and I think it's true that inherently all of us have something that we're just disproportionately good at or can have a disproportionate impact with less effort, even mm. at the task level. But the problem is often people are fixated, and this is underpinned by imposter syndrome, by the things they can't do. And I just always try and flip the development conversation into what people can do and to double yeah. down on that rather than addressing, you know, basically net weaknesses that are never going to be Years and years ago, actually, I remember meeting uh, Jill Garrett, who was MD of Gallup at the time. And she was, I mean, this is a good sort of 20 years ago now, but I remember, you know, very early in my career, and she said to me, always build people from position of their strengths, not compensating for their weaknesses, because 
you know, you get energy from the things you're good at. And she said, it's much easier to coach people when they're flying and they're doing what they're good at and you can help them tweak the odd thing that might not be there. But if you start from a position of weakness, then you'll demotivate them and they'll lose the energy and it's a much, much harder conversation. And I've really lived my career by that, actually. I think I've seen so much evidence when people are doing the thing that they're really uniquely gifted at, it's so much easier to kind of build them up and and see them progress than the other way around. Well, what you're talking about, John, is the underpinnings of, really the, the, the whole diversity conversation. So mm. there is a social justice and fairness aspect of DNI, of course, but the premise of, of diversity is that it drives performance through different thinking, which is why I advocate for neurodiversity. So there's quite a bit of dyslexia in the family. Yep. Autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, all of these aspects lead to difference in thinking, which can drive performance. And again, the link to rugby is, is a game of diversity. It may look like a bunch of mm. orcs kicking the crap out of each other. Yes, the reality yes. is everyone has a different role and that's appreciated and valued. And so knowing your distinctiveness, a bit like branding really, and knowing your mm. distinctiveness is the clue to yeah, disproportionate impact with, with less effort than others. You'll probably know this better than me actually being a rugby fan, but um, I'm sure I remember Clive Woodward talking about the wall of belief back when we won the World Cup in Australia. And he used to carry it around and he, he got the team together and said, in every position, we want world class. And, you know, Johnny, you can kick a ball under pressure between the, you know, between the sticks better than anybody. You know, what was his name? Robinson. You, you can run quicker down the wings better than anybody sort of thing. And, and he reminded everybody before they ran out to play a game, he just said, in every single position, we're going to pick strength and we're going to believe that we are better than anybody else in every position. I, I thought that was very inspiring. Yeah. He's, well, he's got his critics, but I think in that moment, 2003, he really struck gold in terms of harnessing, you know, a bunch of people with very different attributes coming together with a single-minded mission. New Zealand mm. rugby probably is the sort of the epitome um, yeah. in terms of that purpose-led approach within sport. But yeah, I mean, there's there's got to be something in it, hasn't there? Definitely. Well, it's interesting you're chatting about your, your podcast and talking about, you know, struggles that, you know, we have as leaders and so on. Quite interesting, I did, I did a podcast about three weeks ago, being fired twice in one year and talking about some of the failures in my career. And it's, it's become the most downloaded podcast, which is quite entertaining. I'm not sure if people are reveling in my misfortune or actually kind of enjoying the honesty and so on. But I thought I'd ask you the question, if you look at your career, what have been the, what have been the toughest moments in your career or what have been the biggest failures that you've learned from? and that have helped you out? Yeah, I, I mean, I've had a lot of serendipity and always landed jam side up would be my in a nutshell. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I've actually been made redundant four times. Never never twice in one year, I would have. <laughs> yes. that, that takes it. But no, I've, I've, well, I've had four jobs and I've been made redundant four times. So the math doesn't quite work because I am currently employed. Um, mm. But the story basically goes like this. I was destined for a career in finance as a graduate trainee uh, my, I deferred it for a year. My graduate job disappeared in a puff of smoke literally before I'd even started. Um, in fact, I'd not even set foot in the building, but I had a contract. So I was maybe redundant from that. After 10 years at Mars, uh, a big European restructuring, again, made redundant. After four years at 118118, global restructuring, made redundant from that. Two years at HSBC, European restructuring, made redundant from that. Uh, and, and so I've, yeah, I've, I've, I'm the most loyal person I know. I've never resigned. I've never got to. <laughs> That's amazing. But I, I like to talk about it because obviously I've been in a role for 10 years, so I feel quite secure there. But it, to destigmatize, because the reality is many of us, most of us, if not all of us at some point in time, will have something happen to us which we didn't plan for. And the, the key thing is you say, well, it's not, it's not personal. It's not you. It's the role. And of course, that's, that's 
true conceptually, but it's a load of rubbish in the moment because, of course, mm. it's more personal. Mm. And I, I remember the last time I was maybe done it was about ten years ago now. My daughter was nine. I, I came home and I explained that you know there was the role, there was a restructuring and there was a you know, changing roles and you know so on. And she looked at me. and She said, "So what? They just don't want you anymore, then, Daddy." I, was like, <laughs> well, I suppose, in a way. Now you put it like that. Um, so I, th- I think you know there is a stigma associated with redundancy, but of course the virtue is that forced pivot doubling down on what it is that makes you great, what you value, what you do want to do, what you don't want, and, and perhaps force yourself to be a bit more open-minded than you otherwise would be. And as I said, I've landed jam side up, but that's partly because you've got to really think about what it is you want to do. And so I, w- I wouldn't change any of those things, and I wouldn't describe them as failure, more gifts, although it's obviously easier, you get more adaptive yeah. when it goes by. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but in the moment, clearly, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, and, and, and I think... The ability to switch from feeling, you know, feeling the failure to seeing the opportunity, the faster you can make that transition, I think, after the event is is critical. I know people that, you know, I've met up, you know, two or three years after a big restructure and they're still stuck in that mindset of what went wrong and, you know, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not as good as I thought I was. It's funny, actually, I went to... um, one of the most inspiring trips I ever did was to Tel Aviv on an innovation tour meeting Israeli startups. And the company I went with set up about 60 interviews over, over sort of three or four days, meeting different startups. And I remember the first meeting was um, a guy called Shlomo. And he was, I think he ran one of the big VC uh, companies out in Israel. And it was fascinating to talk to him about, you know, what he looks for in individuals, because he would even say, if you've never been fired or you've never failed, you've never actually tried. Mm-hmm. And it's quite fascinating. And he said, it's strange for him because he said, when he goes to dinner parties in the West, there's almost an embarrassment about talking about failure. It's like, you, you know, you can't, you know, you just wouldn't talk about it sort of thing. But he said in Israel, because they've had to adapt and respond to the environment around them, it's just... It's just baked in. So, you know, the first thing they'll talk about is tell me how you failed. Tell me what you've tried and hasn't worked out and what you've learned from it. And I, I found that kind of culture very inspiring, the sort of, you know, the honesty and the, the way of embracing failure rather than using failure as a, as a, you know, as a thing to beat you up over. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thing, isn't it, that resilience is easy to get conceptually, but it's only really acquired through mm. difficult moments and hardship. Uh, and, and again, sport is a great metaphor here. You, you know, you fail a thousand times to win once, and you, you know, without feedback, you just don't know how to improve your performance. It doesn't happen by yeah. record. So yeah, I think we are probably a bit, bit shy and modest in terms of facing into yeah. failure and improvement as a, as a cultural theme. Yeah, it's funny actually. Going back to the Jimmy Carr episode, he said he said I've told thousand, a thousand times more bad jokes than you have. And because he said, yeah, the only reason I've got a set of 60 minutes of good jokes is because I've failed a thousand times on the bad jokes, you know, but I've learned what works and eventually got there. And I think that resilience and persistence is, uh, is, is, is almost one of the, the secrets to success, isn't it? Is, is not taking failure as defeat, but taking it as a feedback exercise and learning from it. 100%. So moving on to it's obviously your role in Direct Line. You mentioned it. You've been uh, in the role almost a decade. That makes you quite remarkable as a CMO, actually, doesn't it? Because, of course, the average tenure, I think, I can't remember how many months it is now, but it's probably sort of 35, 40 months now. What's been the secret to your, you know, your tenure, uh, as it were, as, as CMO? Well, there's obviously a bit of luck. The, the chance to reinvigorate the Direct Line brand gave a good runway because we could Deliver, deliver demonstrable improvement in performance for the business. I suppose it's important that I've worked 
only for companies with marketing CEOs. Oh, that's interesting. So Paul Geddes yeah. was at the helm until about three years ago. Now we've got yeah. James, who's a finance person. But but until that point, I'd only ever worked for companies marketing CEOs. And I, th- I think that's important because you get a chance to get to the good stuff mm. rather than just the short-term survivalism, in- instant impact, instant results before the good stuff has really kicked in. So mm. I think you know, there's a hump to get over. And then the investments you made in talent, infrastructure, culture, uh, capability, you know, they start to pay dividends. So, so that's probably it. And then, you know, I'd like to think that there's a bit about, you know, just being, being authentic, being yourself, uh, enjoying your job, which makes you good at it. means that, you know, you're, you know, you're open to feedback, you, you, you listen, you respond. It, I, I wouldn't go so far. I think Mark Pritchard says, you know, he fires himself every 18 months and <laughs> reapplies to himself for his own job. As, as I, I think I tell myself in lots if I did that. But there is some truth of that in that you've got to be constantly relearning and, and adapting. So it's it's never been the same job any two years and 2022 mm. won't, be, won't be the same as 2021. But there's been a, it's probably been a bit lucky to have worked for marketing CEOs and particularly in this organisation. And then have had the gift of the, the brand relaunch of Direct Line in 2014. For sure, that's a big part of it. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting, actually. I, in my career, I've worked both for marketing CEOs and also finance CEOs. And in the, in the finance kind of CEO situation, you know, in the board meeting, the marketing's kind of the and finally section where you, know, you spend a whole day talking about cash flow projections and operational efficiency. And then at the end of the day, OK, let's talk about the new packaging that John's doing. Sort of thing. And then when I've worked for marketing CEOs, it's almost like two thirds the entire meeting is right. Let's talk about the marketing strategy and, you know, let, let's look, let's look at the executional plan. And then almost like, you know, how are the employee measures doing and what's our retention rates and, you know, operational efficiency? I'm sure it's fine. But yeah, no, I, I can I can really empathize. I mean, I guess they're good and bad, aren't they? So, I mean, the good is, of course, when you work for a marketing CEO is that, you know, what you do really counts and, and it gets the airtime and it gets the kind of, you know, gets the quality conversation you'd always hope. But uh, I suppose it's it can also be a challenge. I know I, I've had equal challenges working for marketing CEOs because, you know, nothing's ever right, is it, in a way? Because there's always a different opinion around the table in a way that, you know, when you're the only marketeer in the room, you can tend to get away with a lot more. But Yeah, I mean, you've highlighted the two extremes, haven't you? That the, the marketing CEO probably feels they have a point of view on everything. Uh, and a finance CEO just may not value it. In, in both cases, I think there's a lot of stakeholder management. So perhaps the real answer mm. to tenure is good old-fashioned stakeholder management, understand yeah. it's important to them, and, and flex a bit to that. I think there's one specificity uh, in working for a, in, a, in a finance-dominated environment, which is true of insurance, is, is not to fulfill the caricature of marketing as a colouring-in function. Yeah. Because that is a default and it's very easy to perpetuate it. Uh, so things like going into the board and showing the ads. I always say, you know, if you're really proud of your ads, show your parents because it just perpetuates the caricature. And so mm. go, go with the econometrics, go with the numbers, go with the data um, and, and control the conversation in a way that's relevant to a finance pioneer. Oh, that's brilliant advice. In fact, often when, whenever someone's asked me for kind of career advice, I've always said, know your numbers. Get you read finance one hundred and one because it, because if you because actually what sometimes marketers forget is they they go they take the job because they want to make advertise and they want to do the creative work, 
And then they realise that actually they're responsible for a huge amount of the business's discretionary spend. And they've got a P&L to manage and they've got targets to reach. And the more fluent you are in finance as a marketeer, the more credibility you have, the more you're able to justify what you're doing and you know, the more support you get from the business. But I, I think it's a, I mean, I, I was a bit lucky, actually, a bit like you. I, I did a business finance degree and then decided to go into marketing. And at the time I thought, oh man, this is really hard. How am I going to go from my economics and finance degree into marketing? When I did get into marketing eventually, it was almost like a superpower because suddenly when we're talking about business cases and projections and stuff, I was like, oh yeah, I know all this stuff, you know, it's great. So we are kindred, you know, a lot. We're kindred spirit. I did economics as a degree and then a master's in corporate strategy. And I think whilst I was narrowly saved from a probably a, pretty average career in finance it does mean that at the outset a bit more commercial than the average yeah exactly no exactly i mean it might sound a bit twee but i remember uh, i i started my career at coopers and Lybrands as, as an accountant and i remember i had a little epiphany and i, I decided that i'd rather shape the numbers than, a, than than record the numbers i want to be the person that changes them not the person that kind of counts at the end of the end of the year how they are so that was my little moment and then i realized you know i then worked out which function has the biggest impact on the numbers in the future and i kind of decided that was probably marketing so yeah. rightly or wrongly that brings us here but so uh, so listen, let's move, let's talk about the, well, first of all, congratulations on winning the Grand Prix, no less, at the Marketing Week Grand Prix. So congratulations on that. I wanted to start actually with, obviously, your Winston Wolf campaign on Direct Line was very well known. And I think from reading up on it, you won two IPA Gold Effectiveness Awards as well. So given the success you'd enjoyed on that campaign, what, what was the moment or why did you decide to uh, change course? Yeah, a couple of reasons, actually. So it wasn't because it was broke. Um, we, we were still seeing pretty strong results. I mean, you, you'll, you'll have the numbers that sit behind it. It may have been tailing, tailing a bit, but it was from a very high level. I think it yeah. was it was it was actually basically a, a sort of a philosophical thing, really, in terms of may, maybe we can do better. Let, let's run that thought experiment. Maybe we can do better. And working with Sarchis, who have been a really strong partner of ours since two thousand and fourteen, mm. we, we, we went in search. And very specifically, there was a there was a construct in the fixer campaign that that was missing, in truth. So if you think about the fixer campaign, in a way, it was pretty plonky problem solution, reason yeah. to believe type stuff, but done in a very dramatic way. And it set out our stall that we're good, you know, we objectively, measurably, we're good, but there was no comparator. We couldn't say we were best or better than some, somebody else. And that really, I think that allowed, that took away some edge. The edge was in the mm. drama, lacked a comparative. So the, the superheroes construct was beautiful in that it allowed us, in a hyperbolic way, to yeah. say, you know, we're better, even better than superheroes. It had a lovely impact internally in terms of, well, no, it's you, it's you that's the superheroes. And we did some brilliant mm. internal cons, spilling out over into media in the vicinity of our offices. You know, you're the superheroes. Oh, um, wonderful. Yeah, I, I'm super proud. I mean, it was obviously in the, foothills of the pandemic so you know yeah all of our plans came to fruition at that point in time but 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 ultimately and i've got, got to give kerry uh, chills and wendy moore's a lot of the credit it's ultimately you know that that belief that there's always better and again the sports metaphor you know you're you're, you're most vulnerable when you're winning and so you've got to be open-minded that there's you know you need to reinvent even when it feels like it's going quite that's a that's a yeah it's a very good point actually because it's when you're doing well that you that you're more open to 
feedback and thinking afresh actually is, is, is almost when you're not doing well that is the hard that's the that's the difficult time to reinvent it's almost easier to reinvent when things are going well isn't it well I, I, ironically sure. you could go either way i, I remember there, there was a, a lovely chap who helped us a bit as a leadership team a couple of years ago a chap called mark board who yeah. was a psychologist uh, in andrew strauss and helped that team get to number one in all three formats of cricket uh, number one in the world uh, and he talked about the track of success so you what can happen is you can continue to get better over time even though the cracks have started to emerge and they they are camouflaged by success he gave a really good example so uh, jimmy anderson one training session turns up in the wrong kit nobody says anything because he got five wickets yesterday and he goes on to get five wickets tomorrow and so people just walk past it because they don't think it's important because it hasn't impacted performance but the trick is that it takes maybe one or two years to unwind. And that at the point that those cracks have become canyons, mm. performance is still at a very high level. It can then fall extremely quickly. And the classic yeah. is the football and the rugby teams that have won the Rugby World Cup, Football World Cup, and then go into a nosedive. Yeah. So it's interesting how performance can still improve, even though the fundamentals are starting to slide. And so you just get blinded to the need yeah. to keep reinventing. That's so interesting. I, I interviewed Eddie Jones actually when I was at LucasAid because we were, we were heavily involved in rugby at the time. And he had this lovely phrase where he said, be tough in victory and be gentle in defeat. Because he said, when, when you're defeated, you know exactly what went wrong. He said, I, don't need, he said, I didn't need to tell any player you know, because I didn't need to remind them. When, when, you, when you had the victory, you thought you were better than you actually were. And that's the moment to go, you know, we won and we won by a big margin. We could have done this better. And he said that, and then the players were much more open to receiving it because it didn't dent their ego and they were yeah. able to kind of take it on, which I thought was fascinating. Almost counterintuitive because you kind of expect, you know, you know the, the celebration in victory and the, you know, the tough talk in defeat, but he kind of turned it on his head, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. So, so, let's, so, so just before we get into a bit more about the campaign, what's the, talk me through from a product positioning point of view, what, what is it about direct line that sets you apart from other insurance? Because obviously the insurance market is incredibly competitive. There are lots of providers out there. So how do you position direct line differently to others in the marketplace? There's probably two key things to say. One is that it's objectively better in that the product propositions that we have are better than our competitors. So you might take you two weeks to get your car back after it's been in an accident with anybody else mm. seven days with us. Or we will fine ourselves ten pounds a day to be, you know, to put our money where our mouth is, and we'll get your mobile phone a new one today rather than in three days' time. We'll get you an emergency plumber within a couple of hours rather than a couple of days. So we looked at the key pain points and have hmm. transformed the customer experience and the supply chain that sits behind, so that we're the best. Not yeah. necessarily the most expensive, because there's something interesting about the brand attracting good risks from an insurance language point of view. So, so that's one thing. I mean, we, we pride ourselves on our service delivery and um, SLAs and so on. The other thing which is just as important is that having created a direct market in the 1980s and then many, many, many following in our wake, and then the rise of the price comparison website and the disintermediation of the direct play, we are now the last brand standing huh. a direct player. Aviva have now gone on to comparison websites. So we, we are unique in that regard. And, and I, I, so I'm borrowing somebody else's reference here, but actually we are now first brand standing. 
Interesting. It's a direct insurer because the future of insurer, that direct thing is really important because it's so driven by data, personalization, fractionalization, mm. uh, ecosystems. The, the model, the, the future model of insurance is already here. It just happens to be in China and there's lots of lessons to learn there. But we think that's a huge advantage because we have a direct relationship. We can know more about our customers, meet a broader set of their needs, whereas that's just fundamentally much harder if you're distributed through a third party. And um, so we, yeah, for last brand standing, first brand standing, really interesting point. And obviously in the world, consumer goods are waking up to direct. Well, we were one of the very first direct brands. And then bizarrely, we're the, we're the only one that's left in our, our particular. Presumably that means you have to spend a lot of money there because you're competing with heavily invested aggregate, or, you know, in terms of intermediaries, aren't you, who are consolidating the market. Do, does the model depend on you heavily investing to drive, I guess, mental availability of, of direct line? Well, yeah, I mean, um, we we, ought to, we need to make sure we're good at advertising, shouldn't we? Because we yes, <laughs> we spend a bit yeah. of money. But yeah, I mean, it's it's roughly roughly the cost to acquire a customer is is about the same, whether you pay that commission to a comparison website or you. I see. Okay, so so your your commission, quote unquote, is effectively the cost of the, the, the GRP or yeah. creating our own mental and physical availability. But you then. Through that direct relationship, and I guess a lot that's stored up in the brand and its equity and its offerings, a higher customer lifetime value. Mm. So there's actually some really good economics around the direct model in our space. So it's if you you know for for economists and you know finance oriented people out there, it's it's super interesting how our differentiator ties back through into the operating model. Does that mean that you have a higher retention rate? Because I think if I go to, I don't know, let's say money supermarket, when my insurance comes up for renewal, I'll be served with, and here are the most competitive rates this year sort of thing. Whereas I presume by going direct, you've got an incentive to keep me in in the fold, as it were. And do you, I mean, does that does that play out like that? We, we do have industry-leading retention. Uh, in general, retention is quite high in the sector. A lot of people shop, but then don't switch. And it's, it's a relatively low trust sector. So for some, that would be better the devil I know than the devil I know. There is quite a big piece of regulation coming into insurance in 2022, which is trying to shake things up a bit and promote fair value and fix some of the, the pricing fun and games that goes on. But yeah, I mean, the short answer is we do have a higher retention rate. So that's, that's a critical component of customer mm. value. And so, yeah, we do have, we, we've got quite a nice economic model going on there. I mean, something I find, you know, fascinating with the, with the insurance sector is it, it, because of the way it's been set up, you're so driven by getting the lowest price. But as you and I chatted a couple of years ago when I had my house fire, once you have a dramatic event, boy, does the detail matter and does the service matter. And it's like now I am a stickler for checking the terms and conditions and understanding actually what, you, what you're covered for. And so it is incredible. And I think anyone who's gone through a major claim will... will We'll be looking very carefully at <laughs> their insurance policy. Your journey, your, um, uh, uh, John, sorry, and um, I remember that quite vividly. That sounded absolutely horrific and could have been you know, really, really uh, tragic. A lot of people do go through that maturity curve of having bad experiences or, or indeed having more at risk in their lives. Yeah. And so it is a sector where your relationship to the product does, does evolve. Uh, and so we do find that people sort of wake up to the importance of it Price will always be important, of course, because it's it's not cheap. But but a lot of people do think, you know, I just literally don't care. I don't understand it. I'll get the cheapest. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the sad reality is sometimes it can make a bad situation even worse. 
Yeah. Well, I'm almost like the, the the advocate for you know getting good good insurance now. Having been the you know, the, well, although I, I say having been driven by price, and what was interesting in my case is. I stuck with the same insurer for 16 years. And in fact, my mistake was not regularly checking the details as, 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 you know, as we renewed it every year. And as, as I remember sharing with you, discovering that I, what, on paper, I wasn't fully insured. I, I hadn't got the right number of rooms on the insurance policy, but because the, I think the underwriter had changed kind of 10 years earlier, the, the data had been transferred and there was an error. I, I discovered this weeks later after going through the pain of almost not being covered. And there'd been an error actually in, in the transfer of data between underwriters, which I eventually uncovered and it was all, you know, all solved amicably in the end and we got through it, you know, sort of thing. But uh, but yeah, no, so I, I, I will tell anyone who's listening, check your insurance, make sure you're properly covered, make sure you understand what is and isn't included and, and don't skimp on it. It's just not worth it because if something bad happens, you really want it. So yeah, that's, you know, that, that's why, you know, I, I, part of the reason why I love your new campaign, because I think it's, it's one of those things where it feels like a hassle to renew but when something goes wrong it's it's a bit like the nhs you know being there for you to you know get you through it's incredibly important and and you know in some cases life-changing so so now i love that i thought i'd give you a little quiz actually well so firstly let me ask you this about the new campaign because um it broke didn't it just before covid of course hit hit the ground last year so so what what impact did that make for your campaign because i know last time we talked you were just about to embark on it how did covid change your plans well, fundamentally, we had you know lots of outdoor stuff, cinema stuff. You know, we had to write that off uh, from the plan. I think we were actually again jam side up. We were quite lucky that would we have still launched if the launch timing had been four weeks later or COVID mm. four weeks earlier? I'd like to think so, but I don't know for sure because obviously the world was upside down. And, you know, is this the right time to be? thinking about the brand so completely differently. So I think we got a bit lucky there. But you know, I mean, so we built a lot of our reach frequency before COVID hit. So that, that's the mm. lucky bit. And so we could stick to our guns and it, it pre-tested very well. And I think um, some, some, a glimpse of some of the results you showed me from System 1 shows that uh, yeah. measurably it has performed well. Uh, so we were probably a little bit jammy to get it out the door. But, but I mean, the, the reality is it has worked extremely well, but you wouldn't necessarily see that in overall growth in the sector because its insurance has been somewhat becalmed because people aren't traveling, buying lots of pet, yes, also yes. driving much less. And so it's, it's a funny game. Insurance isn't necessarily a share game anyway because you know, there's a bit of a winner's curse. If you, you, know, if you price too cheaply or acquire too aggressively, you might pick up more fraud and, and so on. But but no, I mean, measurably, it's it's worked really well. And a combination of winning the Marketing Week Masters Grand Prix and some of the System 1 results makes us feel mm. quite, quite vindicated in making that decision. But but yeah, we were pretty lucky on the timing. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right on that. I mean, I checked out the results, as, as you know, and every single one of the new, all three of the new spots beat the very, very best of Winston Wolf. So, so well done. And, uh, and as I say, we were chatting the other day, so you're now n- the number one on the System 1 consumer insurance database out of about 50 advertisers this year. So so very, very well done. Well, we, we are thrilled with that. And I think the folks at Sarchis as well, and it does come out mm. of partnership that we've struck gold a couple of times. I, that, that hair on the back of your neck moment when you know you've got an amazing campaign that's, that's going to come through. We, we've, we've had it twice, bizarrely with the same people on the client side the same agency, the ah, same yeah. strategy. Yeah. It was a choice to change. 
rather than being forced to do so. But to have two of those career-defining hairs mm. on the back moments in the space of a few years is, again, pretty, pretty fortuitous. Well, well done for sticking with the agency, actually. That, that's, that's, you know, that's good. Are there any, are there any ideas that Sarchi presented at the original kind of creative idea that you haven't yet done that you wish you had? Because there's all, I mean, I, I, some, one of the pleasures of being a CMO, of course, is, is those great meetings where you've got the energy of a new idea and, you know, you're just absolutely popping with, with potential. And anything that uh, you wish you'd done or we might yet see? Uh, not that we wish we'd done, but there were lots of other ideas. So in 2014, within the tissue process, there were lots of interesting things. I suppose the, the big content, rival contender to superheroes was something extremely different. Essentially having a, almost a, to camera, it's, I won't sort of name names or whatever, but a black female American comedian mm. who is incredibly bombastic. And I'm, my goodness, it would have been, you know, it, it would have ripped through. It would have got a lot mm. of awareness and attention. You know, this was all before George Floyd's murder, frankly. It was yeah, before, yeah. before the DNI conversation was really resonating. But, but actually, we thought that was a bit more prone to wear out. And, and, and just love the superheroes idea. So Starches have had a bag full of great ideas. Mm. I, think, I think you know when you know. You do. You've yeah. got the gold. Yeah. And are there any, any superheroes that you have got your sight set on? Who can we expect to see in future? Well, I, I, I don't, you know, obviously the agency, they, they make the recommendations and, and work out what's accessible and available because not all are. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have too many strong thoughts, but I don't know, wouldn't it be amazing like a, a Spider-Man or an Incredible Hulk or something? Mm. I mean, it's sort of endless. The only thing I would say as a twist in the tail, and we get this question internally is well, what about the female superheroes? Mm. It's a really good point. And That's uh, a very good point, yeah. Now Donatello, Robocop, Bumblebee. So what, what I say to that, that... Ultimately, there have been not enough female superheroes through Hollywood through the years and often highly sexualized and therefore inappropriate. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so there's a bit of catch up to do. But as we go forward, it's something we're ever more mindful of. And in lieu of that, have been incredibly focused on making sure that female characters within the copy are you know, r- robust, self-standing, not, not, not you know, female characters that are, are, are diminished or weak in any yeah. way. So it's the oftentimes that the, the woman that has found has made the smart choice found the resolution and didn't need the male superhero so it, it kind of it kind of works as a as a composite but it's it's a very important thing for us you know we to, representation in our advertising is critical because we do spend a lot of money and it's all you know, it's all the stuff that goes into the brains of uk public no, very very good point actually very very good point and what was the impact of the campaign be obviously you won the you won the masters grand prix so i assume pretty good but talk me through the impact it's had on on, on your brand measures yeah so we we obviously do all the as you expect the econometrics marketing effective with quantitative stuff which helps us to sort of continually optimize and we also do measure brand metrics uh, through kantar and, and it's performing well. And we are in the process for the next iteration. So watch out for that. Mm-hmm. A bit of excitement. Um, so I, I probably won't go into too many numbers, but measure, measurably, it's a very, very strong campaign. And, and it only chimes with what you know from seeing the system one stats. So, so, you know, we know we've got a strong property. And it just feels like it's probably quite easy to write more scripts and keep it fresh and make it campaignable. Whereas in a way, there was a risk that over time, Harvey Keitel would become formulaic. Yeah. So the opportunity for freshness is important in campaigns. Yeah. You know, uh, 
mental availability is and, and creativity are cousins to each other. Uh, and so, yeah, we think we've got something that can endure. There's a, I, I was thinking the other day, actually, there's almost a, a measure of the amount of executions that come out of the first brainstorm with the meeting is almost indicative of how good the idea is. You know, you can just tell, can't you? Because if the idea is great, that, 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 you know, there are 10, 20, 30 ideas that instinctively come. Often, in fact, I've, I've been guilty of kind of being two or three steps ahead of where I should be and thinking, hang on, the consumer's not even seen this and I'm already on the, you know, the third series and, you know, the jokes will play on, you know, on the idea and stuff like that. So it's, it's a good measure of, of when you know you're there that, you know, the, the ideas don't stop coming. Brilliant. So listen, really good to talk about that. And, and what's the, if we can just touch on the, the hard business measures as well, what's the campaign done for you in terms of, you know, number of people taking out insurance, you know, in terms of actual people buying? Yeah, well, as I said, we have to sort of do a bit of a decomposition around the fact that latent demand has reduced. So, mm. um, you know, so we're, we're more focused on holding our discipline, holding our economics and ROI and holding share in a slightly bumpy market. So this has been a year to, yeah, not, not insurance, you can chase results uneconomically. So yeah. it's, it's kind of caught in our submission. Yeah, always a bit difficult to talk directly to hard business results because it's, you know, it's, I'm not gonna say it's market sensitive, but you know, we, 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 yeah. well, we have to hold a bit back. But, but what I can say is, you know, we've, what can I say? We, we had record profits in half one in, 2021 and we think we're going to have a good year overall in very tough circumstances mm. you can you can probably join a few dots there yeah yeah no without doubt well let's let, let's not forget of course it you know you've, you've got another insurance uh, product in your portfolio which we all know and love in in churchill and um one of my favorite campaigns actually and i was just checking on the database so we've got 601 ads in the insurance database number four is, is, of course, Churchill the dog with, with chill. And, and what's actually fascinating about that, looking at the numbers, is the, the five-second version actually does as well as the 30. And in fact, I mean, I, I, I see that almost as a credit to what you've done in building something that's so recognisable that even a short form of the ad has the same kind of response in people, the same recognition and mm. emotional response as, as kind of the long form. And, and also what I loved about that campaign was you're not talking about features and benefits of insurance there's no kind of you know guarantee or or service level or anything like that it's just the experience you get from you know from a good insurance product which i thought was very clever was that the strategy with churchill to almost exaggerate the the feeling of of of, of insurance rather than the facts of insurance yeah uh, firstly it is surprising that the five did as well as the 30 um but i think your point is is very valid yeah i mean the, the campaign is beautifully simple and based on two aspects one is we, we just want to create uh, mental availability and awareness and saliency because the physical availability comes through the price comparison website. So it is a, it is a yeah. brand that's distributed through. So I think being very single-minded about our distribution strategy and flowing that through to the advertising approach is, is, is a simplifying factor. The second is it's a brand that's been built on trust in a sector of relatively low trust. And we really wanted to get across that we're on your side. And you can, what, what, something that is often a real hassle, we'll work really hard to make sure it's effortless and easy for you. And so that thought of, you know, you, you can chill because we've got it covered, we're, we're with you, we're, we're by your side. It's such a simple thought. And so, it's, I mean, it's not unlike when a supermarket and the feeling of being epic captures an emotion. 
yeah. I, I'm not 100% sure that people feel as epic as the ad portrays I'm getting a deal, but I'm sure they don't feel as relaxed as the Churchill advertising conveys. So there's a bit of extrapolation. <laughs> yeah. There's a similar premise, which is to capture the emotional experience that people would, would ideally have or, or is currently missing. So I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps over-intellectualizing it, but I, I, I love the Churchill brand. It's mm. a great part of our stable. Churchill himself is a legend, and mm. the advertising is just beautifully simple. Mm. I think I think it's brilliant. I think it's one of the best, you know, the best campaigns I think I, you know, I've, I've seen. I think it's wonderful, and I think the fact that you've got Churchill the dog as the character instantly recognisable just does so much hard work for you. And then, like you say, when you go on a price comparison site, it pops up. You, you feel that reassurance, don't you? Ah, I know exactly what I'm going to get there, sort of thing. So it, it kind of carries through very well. And of course, you know, insurance is can feel painful, and I, and I think to exaggerate the you know, the peaceful feeling. I think it's brilliant. And I think it's classic kind of playing to emotion. You can let the price comparison site do the heavy lifting for you in terms of, you know, price and features, but you want to make them feel positive towards the brand through TV. So I think it's, 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 a, it's a fantastic strategy. So what's next for Churchill the dog, Ben? What can we expect uh, to see next year? Well, he'll be chilling. <laughs> he'll be chilling. Yeah, no, we, you, you know, again, you can see the theme is extremely campaignable. Yeah. So we had we had skateboard and then we had slide. I love the slide. That was great. Yeah. yeah. So actually, with a, a little bit of re-editing to just to bring some freshness through into the first half of next year. But again, you know, you can imagine the sorts of things that he would be doing to get across that soothing, effortless vibe. And music Very is good. an important part of that as well. Uh, and obviously, audio is a key part of all advertising, often underestimated. But but you know, some of the some of the musical elements of Churchill. Mass- Massive. In fact, absolutely massive. In fact, one of our top uh, hacks at System One is always to test the music because we can some, we sometimes see even as much as two star difference on a five star scale between yeah. the soundtrack. And in fact, uh, the classic one actually, we we were doing some testing for Werther's original, and the in the in the in the in the script and the story, in the sort of somber music, people assume it was a dad and his son. I think in the in the film. And people assumed that the dad was divorced and he was seeing his son on a, you know, on a visitation day. And in, in the positive soundtrack, they assumed it was his birthday. You know, they, they took a complete, the audience took a completely different association based on the music that was applied and the difference in star rating was, was two, two stars. It was incredible, actually. And I think that's very much what your, your, your soundtrack in Churchill is doing, the feeling of, you know, of, of insurance as well. Very, very well. Yeah, there's a... Uh... What's just jumped to mind in you saying it, John, is uh, I'm not a massive Strictly fan, but I watch it from time to time. My wife, Lorna, is, is pretty dev- devoted to it. And, and of course, the, the dancer who's deaf. Yes, uh, yes. At the moment where they switch the music off and how different did that yeah. feel? So I think, yeah, it, it, yeah. Really it's the deepest sense. It's the first sense. It's the, yeah. the one that triggers, most spontaneously triggers memories and emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, definitely not to be underestimated. Yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, I mean, a little trick actually is just to just to try watching something and turn the sound down, and you li- almost turn the feeling off almost completely, and and you you realise how much you know you know in films and movies they're using the soundtrack to basically tell the story. It, it, it's almost we're going to make you feel high here, we're going to make you feel sad there, we're going to make you feel surprised. You know, it's incredibly powerful, and and yeah, I mean, you know, I've been in the same situation where. You've left the soundtrack till the end. It's been the sort of what you know. How much money have we got left over to you know buy the rights? And sometimes it's worth kind of you know 
investing much more up front to, uh, to get something that will do the job. So look forward to that. More chill. from I think we could all do with some chilling, couldn't we? So, yeah, more Churchill, please. I want to just wrap up, if I can, Mark, because chat about your podcast as well, because it, it, it's, it's really it's great to see. And, and, and I, I love the... And one of the things I love about podcasting is just how much you learn and how you can connect to some of the world's experts on any particular topic and learn from them. It's just... A, in a way, I mean, compared to sort of when you and I were starting out in marketing, I mean, the resources available and the access to fantastic people and, and and marketing theory and experience is just incredible so how, how how's how, you know how's the podcast going for you and i wanted to find out actually what was what's been your most popular episode if, if you're allowed to share you know any of the yeah, insights uh, so behind we, it we, we started richie and i started the podcast we've done about 70 odd issue episodes interviewed some amazing people the, the core premise is to understand what makes successful people tick, specifically how they've hmm. uh, with squiggliness, because it obviously has never been a, a straight line journey. Absolutely, what you said makes sense in terms of we we learn through that. You know, a real gift to interview these people, not least because we learn. And as I said, we've had some amazing people on. In terms of the most popular, I think probably Mark Ritson was probably up there as one of them. Suki Suki Thompson. She's she's obviously got her own sort of quite hmm. strong personal following. We're sort of hundreds maybe thousands as opposed to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. But that's okay. I mean, we, we had Seth Godin on, and he was also extremely popular. Yeah. And, of course, a core part of his thinking is, you know, what's your smallest addressable universe and be true to that. And, and so this is, a, this is for marketers. And, mm. and so, therefore, you know, it hasn't spilled over into the wider business community like a Stephen Bartlett. But we're okay with that because yeah. it's, it's, it's a gift from the School of Marketing, which main, whose main premise is to help people from diverse backgrounds mm. into the industry. Uh, and so this is a bit of inspiration for them, if you like. But no, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. My favourite, if you were going to ask, was a chap called James Brett. Not a marketer at all. Well, not directly. Um, but somebody whose personal story involved sexual abuse, drug addiction, prison, depression, bankruptcy, three lots of cancer. Just like the most, uh, you know, the hardest of lives. M- mother committed suicide as well. Uh, and James is an absolute legend because he t- channeled all of that into an amazing, setting up an amazing organisation called Plant for Peace, which has turned swathes of heroin land in Afghanistan into pomegranate production to create wow. agricultural produce to lift farmers out of poverty and out of heroin production. Uh, and and just the you know, the gift he gave in terms of sharing his story, you know, an amazing person. And, and that's that's why these podcasts are great because mm. yes, we get to. As, as podcasters experience it but also as you said it's just a gift to the world to, to be able to hear these things these are stories that you just wouldn't have come across you know years mm. ago it would have been hidden um, so he, he was awesome but but generally it's it's a lovely thing to do it's good distraction it doesn't take that much time uh, mm. you get into a bit of a rhythm and so you know I guess we all have a brand and we're all content producers at some point in time so hopefully a few people will, will uh, pop up a few more podcasts in 2022 to keep us all entertained yeah, definitely. I, I really enjoyed actually going talking about Stephen Bartlett because I, I listened to quite a lot of his stuff. He did a he did a podcast on his own podcast in terms of how he got to got it to where he is today, and it's interesting actually because he was saying, I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the the humanity and the honesty and the real life stories. It, it's it's such an intimate such an intimate media in, in a way that you know advertising you know is is down to thirty seconds if you're lucky you know often sort of five or ten isn't it and it's all controlled whereas with podcasting, you get to you get to be with someone for an hour. You get to listen. You get to sort of go behind the scenes. You get a depth and a and a story evolves in, in a much deeper level. And 
you know, I mean, my favorite episodes of mine have always been the really honest conversations where you've kind of really got behind and found out what's really happened for someone in a way that you'd never get on an advert or in a TV interview or, or reading, even reading in a newspaper sort of thing. It's, it's very intimate. Um, and actually, interestingly, what Stephen Bart was also saying, I mean, you know, the numbers are much smaller when you compare it to sort of YouTube or Twitter. But he would, he would say, he'd, he'd put something out on YouTube that would be seen millions of times compared to something that was seen tens of thousands of times or listened to tens of thousands of times podcasts. And the ratio of emails and mail he would get would be hundreds of times more in the podcast, even though it was on paper, media reach-wise, you know, a fraction of the size. It's just you know that the audience listening to you are really committed and engaged in a way that they just aren't on a, on a kind of broad reach platform. So it's incredible. Uh, I mean, I mean I, one thing that's delighted me, actually, is um, everybody that's come on and, and I've interviewed, when I followed up, they've always said, oh, yeah, you know, when you're on there, that's led to a conversation with this person. And every episode, every episode without fail, I get messages from people going, thank you. I was really inspired by that comment or that, that, you know, that idea really encouraged me to go and, you know, ditch the job and, you know, <laughs> pursue my own career and all sorts of, you know, which is so exciting. It's, it's just wonderful. So keep it up. It's great. Who, who, who would you like to get on if you could pick one person? To, who would be the ultimate guest for you? There's not many that said no, actually. So maybe we should be even more bold. Yeah. But I, I, I would love to have sports people on more regularly but we've got to be true to our audience we've had had Sir Clive Woodward and Will Greenwood and Ben Kay and Sir Stephen Redgrave I, I, I think either or and or Barack and Michelle Obama I think a lot of people mm. when we ask people who would you like to hear Michelle Obama comes up a lot so maybe maybe get the pair of them on I don't know we, we haven't actually asked yet uh, but maybe we're just still brewing towards that but uh, we, we had Ollie Barlow on and he was brilliant because he basically gave us a schooling in how to pitch <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and f- forgive me for contacting you out of the blue. Is a, a peach of a line to confidently but humbly tee up. And yeah. There you go. Well, th- listen. So next time we speak, we'll have uh, Michelle or or Barack or both maybe booked into your podcast. Yeah. That would be that would be quite a twenty twenty two coup, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's anything's possible. Yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? Well, let's let's be ambitious, as Jimmy Carr said. Do what you're great at, and uh, do it even better the next year. It'll be great. Listen, Mark, thank you so much. It's it's been a real blast talking to you, and thank you for taking us behind the scenes with uh, Direct Line and uh, what you've achieved through the new campaign. And congratulations again on winning uh, the Grand Prix Masters for Marketing Week as well, which is uh, a great way to end the year. If people want to uh, follow the podcast, by the way, give it a quick shout out. Where can yes, they so find it? The places will go and you LinkedIn, ACAR, Spotify, all normal channels. And I'd love to have more, more people listening and, and suggestions about who you'd like us to interview as well. Brilliant. And if anyone knows Barack and Michelle, get them in touch. <laughs> Wouldn't say no. Indeed. Brilliant. Mark, thank you so much, mate. It's been, a, been great having you. Pleasure, Don. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the latest edition of the Uncensored CMO. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Mark Evans from Direct Line. If you'd like to catch up on more episodes like this one, the best thing you can do is hit the subscribe button. So go to Apple Podcasts, click on subscribe and never miss an episode again. If you'd like to follow me, you can do so. I'm on Twitter at Uncensored CMO. You'll also find me on LinkedIn as John Evans. um, And I'd love to uh, make contact with you. And if you've got any suggestions for future episodes, 
please do let me know. I'd love to hear them. And if you'd like to leave a review for the podcast, remembering that five star is best, as you know from System One, uh, please do go to Apple iTunes and leave me a nice review. That would be wonderful and much appreciated. As always, I really appreciate you listening and look forward to you joining me again. Thank you very much.